we'll uh, run through a couple of announcements. Just to remind everyone, next Thursday night, there will not be Bible class here because we're going to be at the Museum of the Bible. So next week, no Bible class. I encourage you, though, to go on the website. Don't miss class. Just go on the website and find something to look at that you haven't watched in a while from the years gone by because there's about 20 years worth of teaching on the website. So I'm sure there's something either A, that you don't remember, or B, that you need to hear again, or C, that you desperately need to hear again. <laughs> and repetition is not a problem. Sometimes I think I repeat too much. I always like to review, and sometimes I go over it, and I realize that people... I've spent many years sitting in a congregation, and what happens is that a pastor will say something about a verse, and your brain will go, that's great, and you'll start making connections. Ten seconds later, you come back and you go, wait a minute, what did he just say? We all do that. We don't listen to every single word as it comes out, so we need to hear things over and over again and read things over and over again, and sometimes even then, we don't get it. We're not that bright. We really aren't. God calls us sheep, and all of us sheep, and that's not a compliment. I was thinking today, in fact, we're working on a little summary sheet for the people going on the Museum of the Bible trip today, and uh, we were looking at it and thought, well, we can take this out, we can take that out, maybe because uh, it can just come in the form of the announcements. Well, then I found out today that there were several people who, despite it being written out in the instructions, that they were not to sign up for more than two tours because there was not time. They signed up for three or four, which pretty much negates any free time for them at the museum. People are sheep. They don't read instructions. I always loved that when I was a teacher. I'd get, you remember this? Did your teachers ever give you this? They would give you... A, a pop quiz and there were 20 questions and at the beginning it said please read all of the questions before you answer the first one and when you got down to the 20th question it said now that you have read all of the questions do not answer any of them and people who began and did not read the instructions failed the quiz <clears throat> that was a good lesson to learn. Anyway, the Museum of the Bible trip is, is pretty much set. We will be sending out an updated, uh, uh, up updated announcements and guides for everybody. We've got some barbs pulled together, some great pictures and maps so that people can find their way because, they're, you know, we're all adults. You can get a taxi, you can get an Uber, but we've got good maps so you can take a metro and get there, and it will work out for everybody. Um, so, having said that, that's just about the only announcement I think of. Oh, we have our deacons meeting and men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning. Men's prayer breakfast will be at 7.30. I think the announcement said 7. It should be 7.30. And the... Uh, deacon's meeting is at 9 o'clock, so I encourage the men to come. We have a good time discussing what we're reading in the Bible and what we're learning and any questions that we might have, so I encourage you to be here on Saturday morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, because he trusteth in thee. (coughs) For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer first to prepare ourselves spiritually, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together just to be refreshed, encouraged by your word as we go about our lives in the midst of a, of a wicked and perverse culture. We are often just feel somewhat stained and tainted by the world around us, and it's good to be refreshed by your word. It's good to be encouraged and strengthened to come to understand what the real priorities are come to understand what we're to look forward to as we live today in light of eternity, and that we might truly be um, a light in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. Now, Father, we pray that we can understand the things that we study tonight, that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us and how to apply them, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter. The focal point in 1 Peter 4, 7 is that we are to be serious and watchful in prayer. Those words indicate that we are to have clear thinking, objective thinking, uh, thinking that is not distracted by the lustful thoughts that are produced by the sin nature, not distracted by uh, plans for tomorrow or reacting to things that happen today, but to have our m- mindset really shaped by the Word of God. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. That can only happen as we spend time in the Word. So we're focusing on the second half of the verse, but we need to go back and have a little review for a couple of reasons. Number one, I drilled down a little more on what we looked at last time, hopefully to answer some questions that were brought up. And secondly, because when you hit something as technical as that, it's important to go over it a couple of other times just so we can we can put it together. In the previous lessons, a previous section of First Peter 4, we looked at the fact that Peter is encouraging these believers who are living in a culture that is not accepting of Christianity. And he's encouraging them on how they are to live and how they are to handle the opposition that they face. And I mentioned last week of a, of a uh, case in the military uh, having to do with the chaplain. And there's another one that came up this last week. See, these things are just happening week after week after week. And so I wanted to uh, read this to you. This was from a, a column by Todd Starnes on Fox News about an army chaplain this time who faces punishment for following his religious beliefs. And once again, this this has, has to do with marriage. This is the battleground today in our culture. Uh, this whole issue of gender identity, uh, sexual identity, identity politics, its relation to the uh, LGBTQ movement, and too many believers who are willing to compromise and to change their views simply because that's the cultural trend and they don't want to go against it. And what underlies that is the fact that there is not a commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture, that the real problem here has to do with sin. And not not that they've necessarily committed some overt sexual sin, but it's their thinking. It's the arrogant mindset of of individuals. And it's not just one decision. It's just a whole complex of decisions that can take place in the thought life of a person that reorients that which they are attracted to in in the minds. In the Middle Ages and in classical philosophy, we'll study this on Tuesday nights, they had a wonderful term, doesn't mean the same thing today as it did then, and it referred to the affections of the soul. 
And the affections of the soul isn't that which one loves. That's how when, when we somebody has, has an affection for somebody, we think of them as liking somebody and having rapport with them and that kind of a thing. But in, in the classical sense of the term, it means that which the soul is attracted to. And if we put our thought life on some things, then that will begin to develop a pattern and orient our life in that direction. It sets our affections not on things above, but on things below. And sin has a corrupting uh, corrupting influence. And so this is what generates. And then, of course, in a, in a culture that is negative to God, God is going to take them through three or four cycles of judgment that we see in uh, Romans chapter 1. And part of that is, is homosexuality. We're not being judged because of homosexuality. Homosexuality is the judgment of God that will lead to the destruction of a culture. And that's what we see in Romans, Romans chapter 1. And when we start saying that everything is okay, you know, we have to treat everyone's a sinner. I saw, um, oh, I just can't remember his name now. The the um, the guy who's being the Trump is putting up for Secretary of State. What's his name? Pompeo. Pompeo. So I'm interviewed last week, and he handled things pretty well, but he should have handled it a little better. He's being grilled by um, a senator uh, from New Jersey who is saying, well, do you still hold the same views you did several years ago when you were speaking at a church and you were speaking against homosexuality? And would, isn't this going to be a problem with you as Secretary of State? And the way you should have answered that is that the Bible talks about lots of different sins, including homosexuality. I'm a sinner. I work with sinners. That doesn't affect how I treat people with respect in, in the job. That's how she, he should have handled it because what the other side wants us to do is to take homosexuality and, and accuse Christians of making it some sort of extra special sin. Now, it may have more significant consequences in some areas, but all sin is sin, and all sin violates the character of God, and all sin, as we've studied in First Peter, as Peter says, all sin, the lust of the of the flesh war against the soul. They're self-destructive. So <clears throat> there are consequences, and you just can't validate them and give approval, which is what the other side wants. So this is a case where a decorated army chaplain is facing what his attorneys are calling a career-ending punishment after he explained to a soldier that he could not conduct a marriage retreat that included same-sex couples because of his religious beliefs. And what the army has done is to put this guy in an absolutely untenable position. On the one hand, the military regulations are that chaplains are to be true to their denominational beliefs. But, and his denomination, which is Southern Baptist, clearly re rejects including same-sex marriages on marriage, same-sex couples on marriage retreats. And so he's being told, on the one hand, you have to abide by your denominational rules, and then on the other hand, when he abides by his denominational rules, he is in violation of uh, equal opportunity and gender inclusion and all of these other things. So... Um, this guy, this chaplain, Scott Squires, should, we should be praying for him. And First Liberty is taking up his defense. And so um, we need to pray, pray for them uh, as well. So this is a real problem. And chaplains in the military are going to face this more and more, either compromise their biblical beliefs. And it's not going to happen there only. It is going to, if, and it, I'm sure it has already, it's going to hit whatever company you're working for is, it will hit there in terms of the policies of the, uh, uh, that, that <clears throat> govern the treatment of employees and <clears throat> all, all of those things. And so this is going to put more pressure on, on Christians, and we need to know uh, how to handle these things. So 
this is <clears throat> this is what Peter is getting at, and it's really important what he says in verses seven, seven to eleven. And the context has to do with judgment is coming. It's not our responsibility to bring judgment on those who oppose us, those who ridicule us, those who reproach us. We are to respond to them in grace and in kindness and in love. That's where he's headed. If we don't understand grace orientation, it's going to be very, very difficult to respond in grace towards those who are unjustly uh, criticizing us. I want to go back to one point I was starting in in my um, summary there, and that is that in Christian circles, we have failed to uphold the principle of sufficiency of Scripture. And I was reminded today in a conversation with uh, uh, Dan Ingram, who was telling me about a conference that a family ministry has up uh, up in the Virginia area that's coming up in the fall, and he said that uh, Rosaria uh, Champagne Butterfield is going to be one of the speakers. Now, um, for those who don't know who she is, I really think her book is one of the most important books to read today. Uh, She started off as a radical, radical left-wing feminist, lesbian, to the point of militancy, And she was writing an editorial or a series of editorials in a local newspaper. She taught at um, uh, up in upstate New York. And she was writing a series of editorials attacking Christianity. And a local pastor sent her a very nice letter, but he just asked her some questions about uh, where she got her facts and what her basis for criticizing Christianity was. And for some reason, and that means it's the Holy Spirit working, he does that, she would throw the letter in the trash, and then it would bother her, and she'd pull it out of the trash, and she did that several times. Finally, she she uh, called or contacted this pastor. He came over. They had some congregation, conversation, and his wife invited her to dinner. They never talked about Uh, the issues related to her political beliefs or her beliefs about homosexuality or any of those things. And they developed um, common ground, had conversations, and over a period of time, God opened doors and opportunities in her life where she uh, felt comfortable in asking them some questions about some things. And eventually took about a year and a half before she trusted the Lord as her Savior. And as a result of the ministry uh, of this local church where this guy was a pastor, the, she came to understand grace, but she also came to understand the sufficiency of God's Word. And <clears throat> as she grew as a believer, her affections changed. Her affections were directed toward God and the things of God. And Her desires in terms of sexuality completely changed. Now, the world around us says this can't happen. And too many Christians have bought into that lie. And she is a tremendous example. And here's a woman who's anti-marriage, anti-family, pro-homosexual, lesbian. And today she is a well-respected speaker in evangelical circles as the wife of a pastor and they have had, a, a, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 foster children that they, have, uh, that they have reared. But that's the transforming power of the Word of God and the grace of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. And it, what we hear again and again and again is these ministries that seek to change the homosexual. Now, that, I'm not saying that all their techniques and what they do are right, But I know a number of these, and they have tremendous success. But there are failures as well. One of Rosario Butterfield's close friends was a male homosexual, and he became a believer, but he fell by the wayside as a disciple because he just couldn't commit to the Scriptures and to his walk with the Lord as she did. And that's what makes the difference in people's lives. So... 
What we recognize is that it's God's word that changes us and we have to learn it and it has to become part of our soul and part of our thinking. Now back to the theme here in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is dealing with this opposition that comes and we're going to see more and more of it and you're going to experience it more and more in your life. And the warning that he gives is that eventually there is accountability and there will be a judgment. So the context in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter 4 has to do with uh, judgment. And then he shifts topics in 4.7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And I took the time last week to look at this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. And I get this image of you know, some guy in robes walking down the street with this sign in the air saying, the end is near. And there's always people who are, uh, <clears throat> that think that the end is around the corner. But what this actually means, as we studied last time, is because we're living in the church age, and this is the last major denomination, I mean, dispensation, the last major dispensation before the Lord comes back at the rapture and then end times events domino through the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom that that the end has always been near the, because we're in the church age. Whether you're in living at the time of Paul, whether you're living at the time of Martin Luther, whether you're living at the time of John Nelson Darby or living at our time, the end is near because we're in the church age and that means there's little left in the plan of God over the ages. So we looked at the prophetic panorama here and we're in the church age that ends with the rapture that's followed by the seven year tribulation period. There's a transition period between the rapture and the signing of the peace treaty with the Antichrist and between the Antichrist and Israel that begins the tribulation. In heaven, there's a judgment seat of Christ, probably occurs before the tribulation begins, and the marriage of the Lamb. Then there's a second advent, Christ returns. There is a judgment there of those who have survived the tribulation, the believing Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. Jesus establishes his 1,000-year kingdom, and then there's the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So that's our time frame. So the period we're looking at is right there at the end of the millennium. Is this when the kingdom ends? Is this when uh, Jesus is going to turn the kingdom to the Father? Then we, I got off onto that because of this phrase, tatelas, that's used uh, over 40 times in the Greek New Testament, and it refers to the end. But as I pointed out last time, this can be the end of a person's life. It can be the end of a present age or period of time within a dispensation. It can refer to the conclusion of a process. And there are lots of different meanings, so the only way that you can determine it is to look at at the context. And the context here in 1 Peter 4, 5 is a little ambiguous, because verse 5 indicates a judgment that's probably the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment on unbelievers. But 1 Peter 4, 6 is a reference to believers and their judgment. And so they live now according to God. Why? Because they will be accountable at the judgment seat of, of Christ. So it's, it's an ambiguous uh, judgment. It, it, it just He's just talking generally. There's going to be accountability. Some will be judged at one judgment. Some will be judged at another judgment. Then as we got into it, we looked at these, these terms and these phrases, and we get, we switched over to looking at this phrase. Okay, I'll back it. Wait a minute. Let me back it up. Okay, the key word the, of, uh, that, that the uh, end is near just has that idea of it is approaching. The similar language is used by James in James 5.8. says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And the word for coming there in the Greek is parousia, which is not a technical term for either the rapture or the second coming. 
It's just a general term for the arrival and the presence of the Lord. And this word is also uh, found in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So I wanted to try to summarize what I said last time so it wouldn't be too technical. And as I was writing a nice, simple summary, I discovered a really technical grammatical problem in the middle of the passage. So I want to just touch on that because, and only because, there was a paper given on this at the uh, Chafer Conference back in March. And last time I put Clarence Larkin's position up there, and so you're familiar with that. But I just want to bring a couple of things out. As we look at this, there's a progression of order here. It's not giving everything in the progression. It's just bringing out certain key points that are related to what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Said that there's an order. Christ is the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ that is coming. Now, he's not talking about the resurrection of the tribulation saints. He's not going to talk about uh, what happens in the millennial kingdom because those aren't germane to his focal point. His focal point is what happens to church-age believers. That's his whole context to the end of the chapter, what happens to those who are in Christ. So he says, uh, so in terms of a, of a brief summary, what we see here is that, the, first of all, there is the resurrection of Christ. And then the next thing we see is that there is a uh, there's a resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming. So there's this order of resurrection. Christ is the first fruits, and then those who are Christ at his coming refer to the church at the rapture. And even if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you've got to believe in either a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture. And so whatever position you take on that, there's still Christ at his coming. That's a distinction between the church. But of course, we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. So they are Christ at his coming, distinguishing what the resurrection order will be, uh, the church from those other groups. Then we look at verse 24, and it begins with this phrase, then. Now, this is important to look at these little particles. I had a Greek professor at seminary who was quite well known for many, many years, uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. And Dr. Johnson used to say the most important things to look at men are the particles, the connectives, the ands and the buts and the whens and the wherefores and the therefores. This gives you the structure of what is being said. So this word then is, <clears throat> there are different words that can be used. This one is a word that indicates the next thing, but it doesn't indicate mean immediacy. It's a logical order. He's talking about first Christ, then those who are Christ at his coming. There's a resurrection. What's the context of 1 Corinthians 15? He's talking about the importance of the resurrection of Christ, that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then woe is us. So he's saying this is the order. Christ is the first fruits, and then we will also be resurrected at his coming. And he then says, then comes the end. Well, the end of what? As I pointed out, the word tatelos here for the end can mean the end of anything whatever he's talking about. But the phrase, the end there, because it's ambiguous, because it could refer to the end of the church age, it could refer to the end of the tribulation, it could refer to the end of the millennium, it could be, you have to look at the context. So what happens here is that Paul gives two appositional phrases to define this when this end is occurring. This is where it got technical. So I started looking at this because one of the questions that comes up is that this next word that shows up, the word when, which shows up twice here, is the Greek word hotan, which can 
have different senses as well. But the most obvious sense is the very next thing. It's at that time, that idea there. So, and that seems to be, if you read this, that's the normal way to understand this. Then comes the end. Well, what end? And then it's described by these two phrases. It's the end, A, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, he being Jesus. And second, it's the end when he puts an end. Now, that's a bad translation of the New King James. It's the, it's the Greek word katargeo, which means uh, when he abolishes. So we'll just translate that way. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. So the end here is defined contextually as been, being related to delivering the kingdom to the Father and putting an end to all rule and authority and power. Now let me ask you a question. If you look at that, what is the relationship of his action of delivering the kingdom to God the Father and the action of ending all rule and authority to the end. I mean, if the end is a point in time, does the delivering the kingdom and putting an end to all rule and authority happen at the same time as the end? Does it happen before the end? Does it happen after the end? Probably never gave that much thought. What's interesting is the grammar does make a point here, which is pretty interesting and confusing. And the reason it's confusing is because, wouldn't you know it, there's a textual variant here. Okay? Now, this is what a lot of people just skip over and they go, oh, well, you know, all those little details. Well, they can be important. They can be very important. Um, in, in the critical text, okay, that's the UBS text or the Nestle-Alon text or the, 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 called the critical text, which basically believes that old, the older manuscripts are the better manuscripts. And if you get two of the three uncials and P46 agreeing, then that's it. It doesn't matter how many other manuscripts, what they say. Well... In, in the critical text, it says, and I should have changed this to make it clear, it, the, main, the verb is paradidomi, but the form of the word in that text is paradido. Uh, uh, okay? Now, that's a present active subjunctive. But in the majority text which is what's behind the King James Version and the New King James Version, but it's not the, the identical with the Texas Receptus, but it is the majority of manuscripts. And there's only four or five manuscripts, that significant manuscripts that relate to have a present tense there. The majority text has this word, parado, which is the aorist form. And what's interesting is you have a parallelism here in this phrase. You have when he delivers and when he puts an end. Now, in the critical text, when he delivers is a present tense. That means it happens at the contemporaneous action. It happens at the same time as the end. If it's an aorist tense verb, which is what you have in the second clause... If it's an Aristotle's verb, that means this precedes the action of the end. Now, I really had to wrestle with that a while this afternoon to try to figure out how to articulate that, because if you go with the critical text, then when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father happens at the same time as the end. They're contemporaneous. But... So you have external evidence, because I believe the majority text theory is basically right. So that, that, to me, leans me in the direction that these are both the same verb form. They're both, both aorist tenses. But it would be very weird if this, the end, is modified by two uh, temporal phrases that have different 
tenses for the verb because that would cre- it would be confusing. But as I worked with it, I thought, well, you could make you can make a point either way, one way or the other. Um, what this would be saying is that in the case of the critical text, if we want to go with that, then, and notice I put an ellipsis here because the word comes isn't in the Greek text at all. Paul just says, then the end. When he delivers the kingdom to the Father. So in the critical text view, it is, the delivering of the kingdom to the Father that triggers the end. Does that make sense? That's what triggers the end, so they're contemporaneous. But, because when he puts an end to all rule is an aorist tense verb, which is a past tense, that throws the action of putting an end to precede, or or technically when he abolishes all rule, that has to precede the end. Now, in that scenario, just think it through with me. That scenario, what happens is, first, Christ is going to abolish all rule, authority, and power. Then, he's going to deliver this purified kingdom to the Father, and that's what ends history, and then we go into the eternal state. The other view would be that before the end happens, you have, you have the abolition of all rule, authority, and power, and then he delivers the kingdom, and then it's the end. I think that makes a little more sense. But either way, it, it, it pretty much excludes the idea that after the great white throne ju- after the well, actually after the great white throne judgment and the defeat of Gog and Magog there at the end of Revelation 20 that there's an additional period or dispensation in the eternal state of a purified uh, of a of, of a purified kingdom because what triggers the end as we'll see is the defeat and destruction of all this rule, authority, and power. Now, that's further explained, because you get to this and you think, well, why, why is there this abolition? Why, are he, why does he abolish all rule, authority, and power? 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, for, you see, it explains it. This is why. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, that is a really interesting phrase. I mentioned this last time. That word until, or till, as it's in the King James, reflects a Greek Greek word that is a conjunction in this case, followed by a relative pronoun. Now, that just went past a lot of you, but what? But that triggered a thought, and I went back to a paper that I had published some years ago on, Revel, on uh, Romans 11, uh, Romans 11.25, I believe, and it has this same construction. And the amillennialist uh, Palmer Robertson completely abused the grammar here, and what this particular construction in Greek shows is that there's something that characterizes a period and then there's a change that's the until and then after that it's not just showing that it's that it goes to a certain point and then stops but that when you survey or the context of the passages where this is used then There's a state of affairs which reaches a point of completion and then culminates in a change of circumstance, if not a reversal of circumstances. paper was published by Jack Deere going through the uses in Revelation related to its use also in Revelation 20, that the use of this preposition, Akri, implies more than a change... uh, Uh, which occurs, it says, in each instant, a cree implies 
more of a change that occurs after the point this is reached. In other words, everything's going to change. It's like it will be uh, spring until the first snow. And if you live in some place like Michigan, you know that from that point on it's just going to be white. Everything's going to change. It's not just talking about up to a point and it stops, but that what happens after that is a complete and totally different state than what precedes it. So this is the, the phrase says he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet is that at that point there's a radical shift because until he puts all enemies under his feet is the condition up until the end of the millennium, millennial kingdom. But everyone would agree that after the millennial king, millennium kingdom and you go into the eternal state, there are no more enemies left. And so what 1 Corinthians 15, 25 tells us is that he reigns until that point that his enemies are no longer in existence, that there are no more enemies. Now, when we look back to 24, that end, that describes the end. The end is when he delivers the kingdom to the Father when... He puts an end to all rule and authority. So he's going to just abolish all rule and authority and power and then deliver the kingdom to the Father. This is what is meant in verse 25. They happen at the same time. This happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, the other question that was raised is a question related to the meaning of these, these phrases All rule and authority and power. I didn't create a cutout on these, but these terms are terms that consistently in the the New Testament refer to the hierarchy of power among the angels. And they also specifically refer to demonic powers. Arche, which is the word that is that is translated uh, rule. And exousius, which is translated authority, and dunamis, which is translated power, are all found in Romans 8.38, Ephesians 1.21, and Ephesians 3.10. But then when you get to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, arche and exousius are found there to refer to the authorities, the authority structure within the demonic structure of Satan. So when this 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says he puts an end to all rule, all authority and power, what's he talking about? Does that mean there's no more authority after that? No, God is still going to be in control and he's still the ultimate authority. So it's not ending authority per se. It's not ending authority in God's creation. It's ending a particular kind of authority and contextually what ends is the authority of evil, the authority of Satan and the uh, demonic hierarchy. So... Then comes the end. There's no comes there. Paul just says, then the end. How is the end characterized? It's when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. It's when he puts an end to all demonic opposition. Well, there's only one place that that happens in the scripture, and that's at the end of the millennial kingdom when the Gog and Magog revolution is put down. It is what's described in Psalm 110, 1 and 2. So I just thought I would go back and point out a couple of things. The Lord, that's Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, says to my Lord, Adonai. So David is speaking and he says, Yahweh, that's God the Father, says to my Lord, that is the second person of the Trinity, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended to the heavens... Yahweh says to the Lord Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand, not on his throne. He's saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Now, the Greek word here is a completely different idea than what you have in the, in the I mean, the Hebrew word here is completely different from what you have in the Greek for until in Romans 11.25. That, for, <coughs> excuse me, that phraseology is much more precise. But here we say that Jesus is going to 
sit. That's called the session of Christ. He sits in a passive position until God the Father makes his enemies his footstool. That means they are defeated. They're under his feet. It's a position of dominance and victory. And then we have an interesting verse in verse 2. The Lord, that is God the Father, Yahweh, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now this is Jesus coming and establishing his kingdom out of Zion, his messianic kingdom out of Zion. He's going to be ruling in the midst of his enemies. There are going to be enemies during the millennial kingdom. There's going to be opposition during the millennial kingdom. And he's going to rule, as Psalm 2.7 says, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. This is going to characterize that, that millennial period. Now, there's not going to be Satan or the demons involved during that millennial kingdom, but there are going to be fallen human beings with sin natures who oppose Jesus. Now, notice what we see if we skip down to verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. So this is lowercase l-o-r-d. This is Adonai. This is the second person of the Trinity. Is at your right hand. The you there refers to the Father. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. It gets ambiguous. He shall execute kings is going to be, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of his wrath. This is the wrath of the Lamb. This is when Jesus returns at the second coming, I believe. But it could be the end of the millennium. So there's a little ambiguity there. Uh, I've always treated this at the end of the end of the tribulation, but he destroys his, God the Father will destroy his enemies at the end of the millennial kingdom when he uh, basically incinerates and vaporizes those who are marching on the city of the saints. He shall, continuing to talk, I think the he here all talks about the Messiah. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. So I think that what we see here is clear that there is this opposition, but when does it end? It ends at the end of the millennial kingdom with the destruction of those who are opposing the rule of Christ. And then once that happens, then the kingdom is purified. So the end is near. So what are we supposed to do in light of that? In light of its, the fact that we're close and there will be judgment and accountability. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, the command here is to pray, to be serious and watchful in prayer. Now, one of the things that you should observe here in the English text is it goes on, and in English, we have a series of other imperatives. In the Greek, it's not so, but it does catch the force of the Greek because there are different ways to express a command in Greek than just an imperative ver verb. But the main verb that governs this is, are these two verbs to be serious and watchful in your prayers. Second, he says, above all things, notice there's the end of all things in verse 6 or in verse 7, and then verse 8 is above all things. He says, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's the second thing. The third thing is to be hospitable to one another without grumbling or complaining. You know, that's a, that's, I mean, Paul, Paul says in Philippians, we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining, but here it's the idea that we need to be hospitable to one another. That's really important. I don't see too much emphasis on that. I don't, uh, I don't know whether there's a lot of application of that or not, but we are to look at our lives and are we opening our lives and our homes to one another uh, in, in the sense of genuine open hospitality. And then we are to minister our spiritual gifts to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God in verse 10. So let's break this down. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful 
in your prayers. Now, there are two words that are used here. The first word is sophroneo, and it has the idea of being in your right mind. It's an aorist imperative. The difference between a present and an aorist, present is sort of standard operating procedure. An aorist is this is, should be a high priority in your life. So that's what Peter is saying here. You need to, he's telling us all, you need to elevate these things in terms of your situation to make sure they are a high priority. And sophroneo is usually translated with the word uh, sober, but in our culture, sober indicates somebody who's under the influence of, uh, or who's not under the influence of alcohol or drugs. That's not the primary idea of this word in the ancient world. It's someone who is a, a clear thinker. The parallel word, uh, nephos, is one that's tra usually translated sober, but it has the idea of being self-controlled, someone who has uh, self-mastery. Uh, self and so Paul is talking about these two things, these are the action words here. You're to be in your right mind and you're to think clearly and be self-controlled with reference to your prayer life or in order to pray. So that brings up something else. We know that we are to be in right relationship with the Lord and fellowship because uh, David says in the Psalms that we are, if we consider, uh, <clears throat> if we see sin in our life, then the Lord will not hear us. And Psalm 66, 18. And that has the idea of looking at sin. If we're aware of sin in our life, the Lord will not hear us. If there's sin in our life, it blocks our fellowship. The Lord doesn't listen to our prayers, not, not, not efficaciously. So now we have another thing, and that is that prayers should be characterized by being in your right mind. I think that's a clear rejection of the whole charismatic argument for prayer language and being self-controlled being uh, uh, being uh, not sober but just being sober-minded or self-control so let's look at this first word sophroneo has the idea of being in a right mind clear thinking or thinking objectively it implies having a solid foundation and an external standard for what you are thinking it is a word that is used uh, six times in the Gospels, or excuse me, six times in the New Testament, two times in the Gospels. And the Gadarene demoniac is said to be in his right mind after the demon has left. So that, by implication, that means if you're influenced by the thinking of the world, you're not in your right mind. You have to get rid of that subjective, sin-nature-oriented thought life in order to have um, the be in a right or correct mind sophroneo basic meaning that you, we keep running into in dictionaries is that it means prudence and self-control this is according to the new international uh, dictionary of new testament theology that the meaning is uh, the idea in Odysseus is prudent, self-control. It's an antonym of ignorance and frivolity and has a corresponding positive sense. The eudaimonism, that is the, the good word, the, the, the positive orientation or meaning of this, which pervades these early ethical ideas, that is in classical Greek, is... Uh, then consolidated by Plato into wisdom, courage, prudence, and justice. Prudence is this word, is the word sophrosune, which is related to this. Sophroneo is the verb. What does prudence mean? Now, one of those words that you know what it means, but don't ask me what the definition is, because we're not really clear. It doesn't mean to be a prude. It <laughs> means to be wise. That's the idea here. So I put this up on the dictionary. Prudent, there's several meanings here. I just want to underline some of the key ones. Someone who is prudent is someone who's careful. He's thoughtful about what he is doing. He's deliberate. He's intentional. 
He's discerning. He understands right from wrong. There is an ethical component to being prudent. He is discerning. He's judicious. He is going to make right decisions. He's sensible and shrewd, and he's canny. Okay, now this isn't something that is just developed overnight. You're not naturally this way. This is something that is produced, hopefully by parents who teach character to their children, but it comes as you grow spiritually. It characterizes the wise believer who is characterized by, as Proverbs teaches, the fear of the Lord and submission to God. The opposite of prudent means somebody who's careless, inconsiderate, indiscreet, irrational, rash, thoughtless, all of those things. So that gives us a little bit of a better understanding of prudent. The Oxford English Dictionary says that someone who's prudent is someone who acts with or showing care and thought for the future. They're thinking in terms of the consequences of their actions. Uh, Collins 21st Century Dictionary says it's someone who's discreet or cautious in managing one's activities, they're circumspect, uh, practical and careful in providing for the future. Notice these definitions don't all agree, do they? They're close. This is a difficult word for us to get our, our, our arms around. Webster says it's someone who's marked by wisdom and judiciousness, they're shrewd in the management of, of uh, practical affairs. They're marked by circumspection or discreetness. So you get a pretty good idea of what this word means. That's the idea here of safrasune, is that the person who is, um, is, is prudent or self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. Prayer isn't just something simple that we recite. It really calls for something. Thought, and this only comes with maturity. Doesn't mean you can't pray as, a, as a, a baby believer, but the idea is to stop praying like a baby believer and to mature so you can have thoughtful, objective, Bible based prayers. The word is used in passages such as Romans 12 3, for I say, through the grace, though the grace given to me, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. So here the idea is the absence of arrogance and unrealistic thinking about yourself. You're not to think too highly of yourself, then you ought to think, but soberly, balanced, correctly, objectively. 2 Corinthians 5.13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So here it is this idea again of being uh, thoughtful and being shrewd comes across there. Titus 2.6, likewise exhort the young men to be sophrosune, to be sober-minded, to be balanced in their thinking. And the only thing that balances out their thinking is going to be the Word of God. And then our passage in 1 Peter 4.7. Now, the second word is nafo. This is a word that is often translated sober, and it has the idea of being self-controlled. You're not being controlled by something else. Simplistically, this would be not controlled by drugs or alcohol or something of that sense. But it really has the idea of being controlled by the Word of God. Remember, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-mastery, self-control. And so this, we're not going to just let our sin nature and lust patterns run away with us. And so it indicates somebody who has clear thinking, uh, someone who has good judgment, and someone who is uh, able to be alert to the circumstances and situations surrounding them. Peter uses this word three times in First Peter, he says, Therefore, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here the idea is a balanced thinking in, with reference to your future hope. Living today in light of eternity it just fills that passage. Then we have our present passage of First Peter 4, 7. 
And then in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so we are to have clear thinking. One of the uh, worst, I heard somebody not long ago make this same statement. They said once they became a parent, they realized they probably ought not um, indulge in alcoholic beverages very much because if there was a call or an emergency in the middle of the night, they wanted to be uh, have very clear thinking and not have muddled thinking. That's a good point. Uh, but what gives us real clear thinking is what we think. It's the content of our thinking. It is not being influenced by all of the distractions and things that come up from our sin nature, uh, giving in to emotional sins such as anger and resentment and bitterness or just living a life based on our, our emotions. And so the emotions can be a great distraction in life. That doesn't mean that emotions are wrong. It's that they have to have the right spot, place. And that's what this term... Uh, um, uh, nephros or nef nepho uh, talks about. First Thessalonians five six talks about let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. That this should characterize us as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Let us verse verse eight. Paul again says, "Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, and, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." Second Timothy four five puts it this way: "You be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." This isn't talking about whether or not you should drink or anything else. It is talking about your clarity of thinking, which only comes through biblical education in the Word of God. And so when we look at verse 7, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And then verse 8 says, or, or the end of that verse actually says, um, for the purpose of prayer. So we're not just being... Uh, being clear-minded and objective in our thinking for the sake of that. It is with reference to prayer. So prayer is important for handling the opposition that we face in life. The next thing that he talks about is, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, there's a lot to be said about this verse, but I want to focus on before we wrap up, just as we wrap up on this phrase, fervent love for one another. What exactly does that mean? Fervent love. There was an interesting episode that occurred this week. I'm sure many of you have followed that with the story about the Southwest Airlines flight that took off from New York and the engine blew and they had to do an emergency landing in, in um, was it Philadelphia? This is a, many great stories have come out. There are many heroic actions by uh, passengers and by crew members. Turns out that the, um, I think her name was Tammy Jo Schultz. It was the captain of the airplane. She went to, uh, attended Nazarene Christian University in Kansas. She's a firm believer. She made the comment that she rarely gets in the uh, cockpit when she doesn't have an opportunity to witness to somebody. Solid believer. lot of Christians here. One of the men that grabbed uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Riordan as, Reardon as she was sucked out of the window, which is just a terrible, terrible thing, uh, one of the men who helped grab her and pull her back in was described by uh, his wife that this guy was a cowboy, wore a cowboy hat, and his wife said, some superheroes wear capes, others wear cowboy hats. And his name was Tim McGinty, and she made the comment about him. She said... My husband loves God and believes our purpose here 
is to love fiercely and to serve others. That really struck me. So here we have people right there at that plane and that incident that were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and had a real testimony. But it struck me, because I was thinking about this passage this week, when I read that she said he loved fiercely. What does that mean in English to love fiercely? It's an idiom that means, has the idea of love that is powerful, relentless, strong, and intense. It's tenacious. That's very close to what we have in the Greek word here. Something, the basic root meaning of the Greek word that's used here is something that is stretched out. It endures. It is resolute and earnest. It is not going to be shaken by circumstance, but is going to be fixed and permanent. And it this is to characterize our love for one another. And so next time we'll come back and look at what does it mean to have a fervent love for one another. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening, to review some things, hopefully to clarify in our thinking, uh, end times events, and also the importance of living today in light of those end time events and being prepared, and that we are to uh, develop a, a clear thinking and a focused thinking uh, with reference to our prayer life, and that we are to love fervently. Father, help us to understand this passage and to implement it in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.